Are you ready for a fun announcement? Can I get some drum rolls, please? The Behavioral Design Podcast has a new co-host. I'm very excited to announce that Aline Holdsworth will join me as co-host for this podcast. If you don't already know Aline, which I'm guessing most of you guys do, Aline is a fantastic applied behavioral scientist. Uh, she specializes in digital health research and scientifically informed product design. What a good combo. And she is the head of behavioral science at Pattern Health and principal of the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University. In short, she is pretty awesome and uh, have really done some great things for the field. So uh, as part of her joining, I felt that you all deserve to learn from her great insight and experience. So in this podcast, we'll start with interviewing her and we cover everything from behavioral science of what makes a good digital health app to commitment devices and the fresh start effect. Plus you might even learn what the signature dish of the Holsworth family is. With this exciting announcement and change, I'm also happy to say that the Center for Advanced Hindsight will become co-sponsor for the podcast together with Happening Weekly. Plus, the podcast has a new jingle, which is quite addictive, and <laughs> I've got it already stuck in my head. So, uh, so yeah, this is very exciting times, and uh, we already have an amazing lineup of guests coming up, and uh, really look forward to exploring the behavioral side of 2021 with you all. You can expect to find a new episode in your favorite podcast player, whatever it is, every two weeks on Wednesdays. So uh, we're getting into a good habit. It's been a little bit of messy right so far with the first episodes. They come up a little bit here and there. But now it all will come out every other week on Wednesdays. This was definitely a fun announcement, but uh, the episode is even better. So uh, let's get it started. Heavens to Murgatroyd. <laughs> Welcome, Aline, to the Behavioral Design Podcast. Why, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and it's very exciting because I feel like we have good conversations that are not recorded. And <laughs> it's very really fun to have one <laughs> that we can share. It. And I think it's really fun to have you on board here. Uh, for many reasons. So I'm very excited about today. And uh, it's going to be fun to explore. You know, I think you are a great example of someone who has, you know, really been able to cover many areas of the field. So I feel like we have a lot of things to cover. So That's it. true. I'm very scattered. I like to uh, get a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So uh, we'll, we'll try to focus it, though. <laughs> I'll do my best. I'll do my best. But uh, I guess I want to jump right into the questions that I usually start with, because it's usually a question that I get different answers to. And that's why it's interesting to ask, really, what got you in this path of becoming, call it like an applied behavioral scientist or getting into working with behavior change? What was kind of the inception point there? The inception? Well, I really started on the academic path. You know, I was studying psychology doing a lot of research in in that area. Um, there really wasn't any applied behavioral science at the time. Um, but I think as the field started changing, I sort of changed with it. I adapted my plan. And, um, you know, at the time, there was really one thing that everyone did, and that was get a PhD, become a professor, do the research and teach and so on. 
Um, but then as more and more interesting opportunities became available, I started thinking, wait a minute, I don't have to do this thing that, you know, everyone else has been doing forever. I can actually go this other route. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty because it wasn't well-defined. We didn't really know what was happening. Mm. Um, and then I started working at the Center for Advanced Hindsight. This is Dan Ariely's lab at Duke. Uh, that was about 12 years ago. And I feel like even the way that the Center for Advanced Hindsight has changed in these past 12 years has sort of reflected the field at large. It's almost like a, a microcosm of everything that's happened uh, outside. And uh, and this is really interesting because I, I think the way that we've interacted with partners and, you know, really started doing more real world interventions and working with industry, directly with industry, right? That was something that really didn't happen before, but, you know, Dan was very enthusiastic about making an impact and, and really touching the lives of the people who, you know, we were designing these interventions for, not just working in the lab. And so this was very exciting and appealing to me as well. And so I think that the you know, the more that I became exposed to these business applications and, and really doing you know, more concrete research that really felt real, um, the more excited I became a, about doing this, you know, quote unquote, applied behavioral science and less about more traditional academia. And I don't want to knock academia because we couldn't do what we're doing without academia, mm. right? Like <laughs> I'm constantly referencing, you know, the, the, the real rigorous research and, uh, you know, apologizing for all of the compromises that we have to make in our research. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of value that we bring in really getting out into the field and, uh, you know, not just staying in the lab. That was sort of how I started. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I'm curious, looking back, is there anything that you feel like you would have done differently today? You know, if you would advise your, I don't know, 20-year-old self or something like that, is there anything that you would have done differently? Ah, so interesting. Um, <laughs> geez. I mean, yeah, there's a million things I could have done. Differently. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think I like the way it worked out. Yeah, I tend to explore and try a lot of different things. And I think that this is a good way to really get a better feeling for what you like and what you enjoy. There are definitely times that I think I would be more, uh, I would be better equipped at least in terms of credibility, if I had a PhD, because I don't, I, I ended mm. up going to Fuqua School of Business, I got an MBA, I, I felt like I needed some letters at the end of my name, but I didn't, I didn't want to, to specialize so much uh, in the way that you have to, to get a PhD. And I saw, you know, the PhD students around me and the postdocs just, you know, living miserable lives, and I didn't want to do that. But at the same time, I feel like to be an expert in the field and not have a PhD, I uh, I do feel some judgment about that, <laughs> even though I feel like I am as much or more of an expert than many people who did go that route. I think it, I, I do still feel self-conscious about not having done that. Um, with that said, I don't think it was a mistake. I think that I made the right decision. <laughs> right. And that's a really interesting point in terms of, you know, a PhD can mean obviously a lot of different things. You have Partly, kind of what you're alluding to is the, the effect of just having that thing to put on your resume or a wall or LinkedIn page, whatever, which signifies something where you probably studied a very specific 
like you also alluded to, a specific part of the behavioral science domain, very, very specific usually. But then it's almost in the case that you know on a PhD level, everything in behavioral science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I, I don't, yeah, uh, I tend to work at a lot of intersections and not so much focus on one thing or another. And that's sort of why I've gone the more generalist route rather than the, the specialist. And so sometimes I joke that I'm basically a, a person made up of Venn diagrams. I'm just like psychology and business. <laughs> I'm right in the middle there. I'm academia and industry. I'm, you know, Duke is still a university. Uh, behavioral science and digital health. I'm all of these things mushed together because I can't quite choose one. <laughs> Right. Well, I think people listening to this might feel a little bit of sense of maybe, call it relief in the sense that what it sounds to me when you say this is that it's a good thing to explore things in terms of it's very hard to know from the get-go what is the best path to take. And often it is about, you know, really taking a step and then evaluating and, and seeing where to go next. And so I think that's a that's a nice thing. And then in terms of the Venn diagram, I'm reminded by, I think it was in the book Mastery or some, some book like that, <laughs> where it kind of talks about this idea that either you can become really, really good at one thing, you know, mm-hmm. that you carry your whole life to one, one thing. And there's some people that can do that, uh, but it's usually really, really difficult and takes a lot of you know, effort and time. Um, but usually what you can do to, accelerate um, some form of impact in the world is to become, you know, able to stand in two kind of areas quite comfortably. So be able to know, let's say, behavioral science and may not be an expert in AI, I say, but you know enough that you can actually not just bullshit, but actually do meaningful work in that kind of intersection. Yeah, I'm definitely not an expert in AI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's just an example. But, uh, but yeah, I, I do think there's a lot of value in in being able to kind of navigate multiple different areas of the field or applications and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how would you ever know what you're good at if you don't try everything first? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but that's really great. And so I guess talking about Center for Advanced Hindsight, one of the things that come out of it in, I think, recent, maybe it was a year ago or so, is something I want to talk a little bit about, which is the friction and fuel framework. So uh, Kerr Lewin had a theory about, you know, driving forces and restraining forces back in the day. And then Matt Wallert has been talking about inhibiting and promoting pressures. And, you know, the friction and fuel framework, which also Dan O'Reilly has spoken about, uh, and you too, seems to lead towards this kind of similar message and I'd love to hear a little bit more how you would kind of explain the framework and, and maybe how it came to be. Yeah, absolutely. So the basic idea is exactly what you said. There are these two types of forces that influence human behavior, friction and fuel. And yeah, they're just like the inhibiting and promoting forces, the uh, Kurt Lewin's uh, hindering and helping forces. This is from his force field analysis almost you know, 100 years ago. They're also similar to Combi's ability blockers and facilitators. Uh, they're the same as the, the three B's barriers and benefits. And I think it comes down to the realization that um, <laughs> people are just, you know, people are very complicated, but if you try to narrow it down to two things, these are kind of the two things. And it's nice that we've, uh, you know, as a field, sort of converged on this uh, this acceptance that 
you know, you can make something harder and it's less likely. You can make something easier and it's more likely. And there are all these different nuances in terms of how we actually, you know, increase friction or decrease friction or increase or decrease fuel and so on. But it, it all comes back to this same sort of concept of friction and fuel. One thing that I think the friction and fuel framework that at least one version of it does that I kind of like beyond the this sort of two forces analysis is it starts to map some uh, different concepts into friction and fuel. So we have behave the um, the acronym behavior that sort of fits within <laughs> friction. So we have bias, ego, and habits falling under friction, and then uh, you know all the rest: appeal, visceral incentives, others, and reminders. This was something that just kind of came to me in the middle of the night, and I was like, "These are the <laughs> like this is my mind space." And I think that there's you know there's something to be said for frameworks in general, and uh, there's a lot that we can get out of them. I also am pretty critical of frameworks, even even having you know been the one to put this together, just because I think they're they're inherently flawed. They're never going to capture all of the nuance. There's always going to be examples where the same exact thing can be a friction in one situation and a fuel in another situation. And then you also have this circular logic where if you're using the if friction is anything that makes a behavior less likely, you're sort of open to. Uh, interpretation where it's not, you're not really defining your terms. And I think all frameworks suffer from some of these same, same challenges. And if you really scrutinize them, they all start to fall apart. So <laughs> in general, I think people love frameworks and they can be really helpful for guiding your reasoning and just thinking through a problem and saying, well, have I thought about how someone's existing habits might either help or hurt this new behavior that they're trying to adopt? And I think that you know, just just having this almost like a checklist to go through can be very helpful, but I, I really don't rely on it very much. And I think that it would be a mistake to, you know, use this as, uh, you know, the, your guiding light to everything that you do in terms of trying to, uh, you know, help help people with their behavior change. But, you know, <laughs> in a sense, uh, you know, I'm biased. The, the behavior framework, the friction and fuel framework would, would tell you exactly this. So I like my framework the best. I think it's, <laughs> I think if you're ready to, uh, I think of it as if you're ready to graduate from East, but if you're looking at the, you know, that cognitive codex with the like 500,000, <laughs> like if that makes you want right. to cry, like it makes me want to cry. I think this is like a nice middle ground. And we use it at the Center for Advanced Hindsight and also at Pattern Health with our partners and and uh, especially with people who aren't accustomed to thinking about behavior change. I think it can be especially useful to start to sort of ground people's thoughts and get them thinking in the right direction and think about things that they aren't used to thinking about. Yeah. And I would say you mentioned something that I think a lot about when it comes to models and frameworks. Obviously, you're alluding to this fact that we have so many models and frameworks in the field. However, I would say one metaphor I like to think about is comparing models and frameworks to like a map in that the reasons why we have maps obviously is because it's, they can be useful to navigate the world. However, if, if you have a map that's like one to one ratio with the world, like just encompassing all the complexity, it becomes incredibly not so useful because it's going to be it's really big unless you have some like yeah. really advanced maybe now then you're Google a computer. Maps, 
yeah, yeah. in your computer. Uh, or you can have this kind of like treasure map where you just have this cross and you have these dots, which is a little bit too simple. <laughs> it doesn't really it add is, a, lot, yeah. a lot of usefulness. <laughs> and I would say that I can personally stand behind <laughs> the friction of your framework in the sense that of the different ones that I, I've you know navigated around, I've ended up actually using that to explain you know, behavior and behavior change to quite a few people because I think it's, for a couple of reasons, I think it's useful in the sense that it's easy to get your head around it, the, the wording. I think friction and fuel lends itself quite easy to yeah. the metaphor of explaining you know, the dynamic a little bit going on. And I like the behavior uh, mnemonic or, or acronym. I think it's quite fun. And uh, so, yeah, I think you said it well in terms of, okay, you shouldn't take a framework and you expect that, okay, use by this framework or model, you then understand all of what is behavioral science or behavior change. Right. <laughs> but it can be very useful at certain times. And especially, I think, as you say, once you're ready to see things maybe from just east or something like the maybe some of the basic ones. I think it's a good it's a good uh, framework. So so yeah, I I can endorse it personally. Thank you. And I think like you know to your point about how uh, you know the the terms themselves are very memorable. I really like Dan uh, Dan Ariely's rocket ship. His visual he has this illustration of a rocket ship, and you know you have the fuel you know taking it up into outer space, and then you have the frictions like gravity and so on and. And I think just having that sort of visual aid really helps, you know, get your mind in the right uh, in the right place. So yeah, I like that too. He can he can take the credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. And um, so one thing I don't know if I'm going into a similar direction even further now because you have also written what I consider one of the better articles of the whole year last year because I think it was quite uh, nice how it set up things was in terms of uh, loss of human behavior and (laughs) yeah so obviously I think it should be said that it's hard to define okay what are the laws of human behavior but again it can be very useful to get an understanding of okay maybe one of the more important different laws to cover so maybe could you share you know, those three laws and, and maybe explain a little bit why they're important to, to know. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one that, uh, that I actually am thinking I could turn into a book because there's so much that you could talk about in each of these, right? So the first one is, oh, you'll, we'll have to look up the actual wording, but it's essentially friction and fuel, right? So the, the three laws, I'll just back up quickly are modeled on Newton's three laws, uh, you know, of nature and physics. And, and, and I've sort of taken this as a tongue in cheek human behavior adaptation of Newton's laws and sort of tried to say, okay, if we were to map these physical laws to human behavior, which of course you can't do, um, what would, what might they look like? And, you know, let's throw in a formula too, to make it look more, uh, more legitimate. And so going back to Kurt Lewin, the second law of human behavior is that behavior is a function of the person and the environment. So, uh, Any time that you see a behavior happen, it's not, you know, 100% due to that person's personality or, you know, just who they are. It's also not 100% due to the environment, but it's actually an interaction between those two. Um, and so that's, a, I think, a very important thing to think about when we're designing for behavior change and even just thinking about 
how people are acting around us and trying to understand the world. Um, and then the final law is all about externalities and, you know, how when you do one thing, there are all sorts of unintended consequences and things that might happen that weren't really the original intention of, uh, of your intervention or, or what you were trying to do. Um, and this is something that I almost think this is the most important of the three laws. And that's because I think we're better at remembering one and two and three, <laughs> three just gets lost all the time. We, we think, okay, we're doing this really good thing over here. We're, you know, we're encouraging people to, yeah. So, uh, Neil, Lewis just gave this example recently where in the UK, there was some really strong incentive for people to buy uh, electric vehicles. And this was really, you know, great, right? Um, what they didn't take into account was that this actually led to um, children mining uh, in the in the Congo and all of this, uh, you know, child labor leading to, you know, trying to get the <laughs> enough energy to create these these cars. So, it's one of those things that's very hard to map because you don't always know what to look for. You can, if you're trying to manipulate one behavior, you look at the things that are close to that behavior and you don't always think about all of the downstream consequences and the things that could be related, but that, uh, that might not be very obvious at first. And so that's, I think, something that as a field, behavioral science could uh, put some more resources and effort into trying to figure out, well, when we get people to do one thing, what is the other? What else happens? And I experience this all the time when uh, my Apple Watch reminds me to to stand once an hour, <laughs> pretty reliably at, at you know fifty minutes into the hour, and I stand up, and that's really good. But then usually, what I do with that time is I go and get a snack. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, right. it's it's making me healthier in one respect and less healthy in another. I was going to say, it's a good example, maybe. So, O-Power is something that people probably have heard about, the, the example of using some form of social norms on your, like your bill, what do you call it, electricity bill or mm -hmm. utility bill, and indicating how much you consume comparing to your energy-efficient neighbors and so on. And obviously that looks at, you know, how much does this change the behavior in terms of using electricity, let's say, but when using social norms in this scenario, you could also imagine that maybe this kind of changes the relationship people have with their neighbors, maybe for the better or for the worse. Like maybe people start having a more competitive uh, view of their neighbors and maybe as more they see that they're performing worse than their energy efficient neighbors. They start thinking like, oh man, I bet, I bet it's it's Dan who's the douchebag mm -hmm. who's because he's never using, you know, like something like that, right? <laughs> uh, that's just a hypothetical. I'm not sure if that's actually something that could happen or would be the case. But as an example, I think that's something we often neglect in terms of that that could be a negative consequence. Is that kind of what you're uh, talking about here? Yeah, absolutely. And 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 I think that just as a field, what we haven't done is even try to measure these. And I think it's it's a, it's a big challenge too, right? Because we don't exactly know what to measure or how to measure it and where to even start. But I think that's why it's something that we should you know, start paying more attention to. Yeah. And I guess it also ties into this bigger question of what's on a lot of people's minds, especially this year, I think, with the Social Dilemma documentary and in general spending more and more time at home with maybe our screens and so on, <laughs> is just 
thinking about yeah how we design products and solutions and what are the different unintended consequences because again I, th- I think it is to i think if you've seen the social dilemma they have this guy who's you know the inventor of the like button and like almost that that's a terrible thing in some ways but hmm. i think you know it's it's easier said than done that's to, funny because i, I yeah. often hear uh, well a different interpretation which is that the the it's so good that there was only a like button and not a dislike button in addition because then we only had positive reactions there's either neutral or it's like the your mom right. yeah, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say don't say anything at all <laughs> yeah but it, i guess what what they're framing around in there is to to say that well because of the like button then people got addicted to social media because they wanted the likes <laughs> and yeah. um yeah i think that's an extreme kind of version of this but i think it's it's one of those things that I think we would benefit in general from in the sense of thinking more about not maybe the core metrics of, let's say, retention or adherence or whatever it is, but seeing maybe one step further, like what are the different other indicators we could have that could measure, you know, <laughs> if whatever intervention we have lead people, okay, maybe they achieve the behavior that we target, but also maybe like you mentioned in terms of they stand up, which is great, but also they end up eating a lot of uh I don't know what your preferred snack is, but I would say cinnamon <laughs> Mostly buns. Mostly fruit these days. Good. Yeah, it's not okay. terrible, you know, but you can eat right, too much right. fruit too. Yeah. So I will first admit, uh, I have not seen The Social Dilemma. I'm, I'm, I'm in a place where I can only watch light, fluffy movies right now. And I've heard from so many people, oh, it's so it's such an important film and you really have to watch it. And, and But also that you know, it's really depressing and it'll make you want to... Like, quit right. your, all of your social media, which, you know, I've already had that, uh, that inclination, um, before. And I think, I think what you're getting at is, you know, w- what sort of behaviors are we trying to encourage? And, uh, ultimately we want to encourage the, you know, the healthy behaviors at the end of the line. And if you have to get people engaged in, in a mobile app in order to get to the ultimate behavior, then th- sometimes that's, you know, that's a requirement. If you don't have, if you have an intervention that's coming through an app, but people don't use the app, well, you know, it's, you're you're not going to get them to, to do the thing. So in some sense, engagement is important, but you don't, you know, focusing on engagement for the sake of engagement, of course, is not good. Um, So we, we don't do that. We don't, if, if people are taking their medication and exercising the appropriate amount and eating healthy and so on, and, and doing all of the things that our interventions are geared at, then we don't care how often they open the app. If they're just looking at the, you know, notifications and we, you know, we're passively tracking their behavior and they're doing all the right things. We're very, very happy. The goal is not to get people to, you know, to use the app ideally. (laughs) Yeah, I know for sure. But it's a great segue actually to diving more into digital health. And so I guess my main question is in regarding to that, what do you think is, a good digital health app from a behavioral science perspective. Does that <laughs> exist or is there some form of way of thinking around that? Does it exist? To be very brutally honest and, and as frank as I can, I, I will say I haven't really seen many good digital health apps. I think that in general, you see one of two things. You see either these really visually beautiful digital health apps that are made by designers and engineers who really don't know anything about human behavior. So if you do a, a quick 
Google Scholar search, you'll see tons and tons of papers that are evaluating the, the landscape of digital health and, you know, trying to assess it, you know, in these very systematic ways, how they've incorporated any sort of behavioral insights. And it's really close to zero. It's like really, really a sad scene. Um, or, and then you see the the converse where you have these digital health apps made by researchers um, who know a ton about human behavior. They're really the experts uh, on this, but they they don't know anything about visual design. They have awful user uh, user experience and user interface. They, you know, they've got all the evidence based messaging, and they've sort of like really done a good job trying to incorporate the literature. But they have these like ten page PDFs like uploaded into an app, and the execution is just miserable. Um, and I think that's why that's really why it's uh, I think it's so important for. Um, collaboration between disciplines for these behavioral science to actually work with designers and engineers for these builders to work with scientists. Um, they have truly complementary skills. And even, you know, if, if they're done right, they have quite a bit of overlap. So if you, you know, when I talk to designers, they're talking about heuristics and, and many of the same things and simplicity and, and so on, uh, reducing friction and, and, you know, <laughs> really, really many of the same concepts. But if we're not talking to each other and are just working independently, I think it's a really, a really big waste. This is sort of one of the reasons that uh, that my work at Pattern Health is so exciting. And this is so Pattern Health has a collaboration with the Center for Advanced Hindsight. Um, and so we're really all kind of working together to combine this expertise and and creating interventions that are not only grounded in evidence and really have all the behavioral science infused into them, but, you know, also, also really nice for consumers to use. Like people have very high expectations of, uh, of digital health apps when they download something. If, if you're going to be in a research study, you're not necessarily going to be really forgiving of the researchers who've created an app. You still want it to work really well. And I think that realization has, has led to a pretty successful collaboration. And I do wish that there were more people <laughs> doing this, right? It seems, right. it seems like such a shame. Y- you know, we were talking about the the Apple watch and I think that there's actually, this is almost a, a, a nice exception to my, my not rule, but just my, my general opinion that there aren't many good digital health apps. I think that the the fitness app actually does a pretty good job, at least covering the basics. You know, there's there's always mm-hmm. room for more interesting, innovative things. But I think what, what it's really good at is, you know, it's very clear. You have to do these three things. You have to move, exercise, and stand. It's very simple. It's adaptive. So it's personalized to um, each person's actual level of fitness. And it also you know, raises your goals over time. So if you reach your move goal, for example, however many, I don't know what the algorithm is, but it essentially challenges you to sort of level up over time. You get this real-time feedback. So anytime you reach a goal, it tells you that, um, you know, there's the stand prompt. So it has these real-time reminders, hey, get up, you know, and so on. It has all of these, many of these elements of uh, that we would say uh, behavioral designers should include in any sort of behavior change intervention. Oh, of course, there's the social, the social element um, with sharing your activity and then competition. Um, right, right. And these I, I find can be very motivating. Um, even as have you a, used the social one for Apple Watch? Oh dear, um, <laughs> have I? 
uh, <laughs> something that you that you may not know about me yet is I am a very competitive person. Um, and so I, even in my, my third trimester of pregnancy, I am doing competitions with my sister <laughs> over with our Apple watches and there's nothing that's going to stop me from beating her. <laughs> So I'm doing my exercises wow. every day, getting in all my steps. <laughs> yeah, it That's works. Very cool. So, <laughs> so yeah, because I'm, I'm personally a really big fan as well of the Apple Watch. And I think it's been useful for me in just kind of the, what you say, like getting the small things I think to do really well. And But I have never really got into the more social aspect of it. I had one mm. guy at a co-working space I was at uh, two years ago who, when we both got it around the same time, we were like, hey, we should totally share. And it became weird because I could see, you know, like, why why do I want to see when this guy, you know, does things? <laughs> yeah, and, and I, so yeah I, and, I do um, think there's an argument for t- toning down the the number of notifications that you get about someone's, uh, or, or like, only tell me when they do something really special. So I've had to mute right. some some of the, some of that actual sharing. Um, but yeah, we should, we should compete sometime. <laughs> <laughs> See if you can beat a I'll pregnant be, lady. I feel a little bit hesitant now. I feel like uh, <laughs> you're going to, you know, not go easy on me. So, yeah. yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But we could. We could. I think that would be fun. <laughs> and uh, so tying tying this back a little bit to what then makes, in your mind, a good call like behavior change app, is there something that you notice in general that you think is a kind of a, some of the important things to to cover um, beyond having a cute turtle in, in your <laughs> I mean, the cute turtle is pretty key. Um, yeah, <laughs> it, it, we've done a lot at, at Pattern Health in terms of sort of digi- designing the platform uh, to really take what, you know as many existing insights as we can, bake them into the product, um, create a more engaging, motivating digital health platform as a whole. And I think that, you know, it's hard. <laughs> Actually, one thing that I've done is uh, use the the friction and fuel and, and the behavior framework to say, let's make sure that we've checked all of these boxes and have examples from from each of these categories. I think that's a, a good way to, to start to sort of use that as a checklist. We've done a lot of work in terms of commitment tools and social tools. These are the things that I probably share the most often. Did you want me to share any of, there's just so yeah, much. Yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I'd love to maybe both of those, maybe sharing a little bit of what you've learned using using them in different sure. ways. Sure. Um, so in terms of commitment tools, we really have three sort of major um, categories that are that are very shareable. And I, I think of them in almost ascending order of intervention intensity. So we have pre-commitment, which is really a very, a pretty light commitment. Implementation intentions go a little bit further. And then commitment devices are like the real deal. These are, (laughs) these are the ones that like, you're not going to break. And so if you start with pre-commitment, this is just sort of like, you know, okay, you get your digital health plan. um, You have all these things that you need to do. And then we ask people to just sign their name and commit to that program. They can share it if they want if they do share it, they end up being more successful than if they don't. But it's one of those things that, you know, give people a choice. And I think that the signature itself is a really interesting thing. Um, we we use the signature to establish these really serious contractual obligations in other other domains, right? You know, when you're you're signing a your lease or you're, you know, signing a check and so on. 
but we don't use this strategy really ever in health. Um, we don't get people to to sign their name to commit to, you know, I'm going to exercise every day this week or, or so on. Um, and I think that's a, a lost opportunity because it's such a familiar device. People are really comfortable with signing their name. Um, and, and so we just decided, why not? Let's have people, <laughs> let's have people commit to their goals. It's easy. And, and then if you want to go a step further, we have this, you know, we, we use implementation intentions, which are pretty popular in behavioral science, um, often used for one shot behaviors, like, you know, getting someone to decide when they're going to get their flu shot or go to the gym or so on. There are these, basically these if then scenarios where you say, if, blah de blah happens, then I will do this other thing. And it really, uh, the usefulness of it is that it helps people remember the thing that they're supposed to do when that trigger happens. So you're associating the behavior with the cue. And there's lots of, lots of evidence that these can be very effective. They sort of establish this automatic connection between, uh, between the situation and the behavior. Um, And so we did we did this in actually a longitudinal study where uh, with heart failure patients um, over six months, we asked them to, from time to time and an unexpected basis, just tell us when they were going to take a weight measurement. So like, tell us when this evening you're going to step on the scale. And so um, we gave them just basically you know, four options, really versions of, of two, where it would be before or after you have dinner or before or after you brush your teeth. And so when people chose one of these things, when they set an implementation intention, they were twice as effective at actually stepping on the scale. And that's a pretty, pretty dramatic increase. If you think about it, when yeah, can you get wow. people to actually double their likelihood of, of doing a thing? Um, so very, very small, light intervention that has a pretty outsized impact on behavior. And that's been something that's been relatively, you know, seen in, in different types of research on implementation tensions, just how big a difference they can make. Just, I think some of the earlier one was just like having people say, you know, when they were going to work out and that became a much, much, you know, stronger indicator for them working out than providing information on motive, like motivating information or that kind of stuff we think maybe is more useful. So, so yeah. Yeah. That, that yeah, absolutely. And, the, and just to nerd out a little bit, the original research line is all about MCII or mental contrasting and implementation intentions. And this is actually goes a step further where you're supposed to imagine what could go wrong? Like, you know, it's raining, you know, I'm supposed to go to the gym in the morning, but it's raining. And so you're, this is the mental contrasting part where you're saying, you know, you know, what are, what are the challenges that I expect to, to face? And then the implementation intention is actually solving for that problem where you're saying, okay, if it's raining, then I'm going to get my, you know, my umbrella from the closet. And it seems like a really silly thing to plan for, but it's actually like, like raining, that's enough to stop you from going to the gym. And if you don't have that plan, you're, it's so easy to justify not doing it. You're, you know, you're just not going to do it. But if you've explicitly said to yourself, if it's raining, then I'll get my umbrella. (laughs) It's, unbelievable you're actually more likely to go to the gym because you're, you've already decided that you're going to get your umbrella if it's raining uh, it's pretty amazing <laughs> yeah that's amazing that's very cool and so i guess that leaves us with the the last one which you exactly talked about having a little bit of um you know maybe some more serious uh, aspects to it so 
commitment devices. I love commitment devices. I think we really underutilize commitment devices. Um, And I think that, I think part of it might be that we're afraid to ask people to punish themselves if they they don't do a thing. But essentially it's you you pre-commit to doing something. And if you fail at doing that thing, then you have some sort of consequence that comes as a result. And, you know, you can, you can also use a commitment device to reward yourself. You say, well, if I succeed at going to the gym, then I'll give myself a new tennis racket or whatever. But those are not the more interesting commitment devices. <laughs> We've done a version of this with, uh, you know, with Pattern Health in collaboration with the Center for Advanced Hindsight, which, which is a feature we designed called App Interrupts. And this is a, a feature where users are asked to commit to a health task. And then if they fail to complete that health task, they actually lose the apps on their phone. So it's, Dan likes to talk about this as, as the turtle, the sort of Tamagotchi turtle mascot pattern health eating, eating the user's apps. And then we don't let them, you know, sign into Facebook or Twitter or whatever until, you know, they get a, they get a new start the next day. Um, and so, th- you know, the idea behind this is just that some people are what we call more sophisticated and realize that in the future, they're go- they're very you know, likely to have some sort of self-control failure where, you know, maybe I, I think right now that I'm going to take my medication, but in the future, you know, my life is really busy and all sorts of things might come up. So I'm going to pre-commit that if I don't take my medication, I will, I'll lose my apps. And this gets people to be uh, much more, much more adherent to their medic- medication regimen. This is a, we did a study where we, we compared both losing um, people's, just their fun apps. So like social media, that sort of thing, or they could opt into also losing their functional apps. So things like maps or messages, <laughs> things that you really, really need. You know, if you, if you give up social media for a day, that's almost like a reward. <laughs> like you can think of it <laughs> as like, that, that's sure. good for me, right? You can justify it. But if you have to, you know, you, you can't call your mom at night, that's, uh, that's maybe a little more, a little more sad and more motivating. And so uh, over the course of this study, we found that uh, medication adherence was a full 10 percentage points higher if they opted into um, to doing this app interrupts program. And we're currently running a study testing different levels of forgiveness. So say you you fail at, uh, you know, doing whatever, you can, you know, just basically ask for forgiveness and say, no, I'll do better. Please give me my apps back <laughs> and seeing if that's, that's actually more or less effective than, you know, striking everything and not giving anyone a chance, you know, if, if people commit to doing better in the future, maybe, maybe letting them you know, turn a new page and uh, and do better. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think in general, I agree with you that commitment devices are underrated and can be seen in so many different ways. I think something like, I think someone wrote an article as well about just the benefit of having a dog for that reason. Uh, it's kind <laughs> yeah. of a commitment device to actually take walks and, and do those kind of things. Exactly. And um, it's tricky being, you know, in the field of behavioral science because it's almost a blessing and a curse in the sense that you start seeing it everywhere, you know, in some sort. And one example I had recently, I don't think you've watched this documentary because it sounds like you you were staying away from the more darker <laughs> stuff. But I ended up watching this The Vow documentary. I don't know if you've heard of it. No, I haven't. It's about a cult. Uh, so, In fact, I haven't even heard of it. Yeah, the short stories came out very recently. It's very interesting in the sense that it was about a recent 
cult phenomenon called Nexium, and uh, had you know some as 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 makes for good uh, drama is that they have some celebrities and some Hollywood actresses and so on involved. Uh-huh. And what was interesting is their elaborate commitment scheme they had in terms of like really using, I guess, all what we know about commitment devices in the worst way, in like for the worst way in terms yeah. of how it was set up. But yeah, I, I feel like that that we could maybe spend an episode just breaking down how they set that up because there's so many parts to it that was, you know, what do you call it? Ingenious when something's like smart oh, but also terrible. Mm, um, no, I think ingenious can still that? be good. Okay, I, I, I'm looking for a word for something that's terrible but but smart. <laughs> um, that's good that you can't retrieve the terrible words as quickly. I'm sure they have a word for it in German or something. But um, yeah, I know what word you're thinking of. <laughs> I just can't. <laughs> right. I know exactly what. You're There's a word for it. Yeah, uh, but. Uh, Segwaying, because you mentioned also the social aspect that you have experimented with. And in general, something I would wanted to hear your thoughts on is, so one part of it was I mentioned before with O-Power, social norms has been, I think, especially somewhat thanks to maybe the nudging uh, crowd, of sort of say, uh, has got a lot of attention. And I think it's usually spoken about as like um, easy, quick fix for a lot of you know, behavioral problems, just mm-hmm. add this kind of social norms. So I'm just curious to see or hear more about how you think about using different types of, you know, social interventions, so to say, and maybe also what you think about social norms in, in, in apps. Yeah. So I don't think that, that social norms are used quite that much in apps. Uh, I think that, that there's still potential to use them more. With that said, I think that you know, we're still using the O-Power example from, that was 10 years ago, right? Like we've hopefully right. come, we've made some strides since uh, since O-Power's uh, sharing of social norms. I think there's a lot of more exciting work being done and there's potential to use social elements in a lot of new ways that aren't strictly norms, you know, different kinds of social tools. So uh, where we actually rely on other people and tap into our social networks are, you know, are real and also online social networks and use our, uh, use them for support and accountability. Um, and so we, we've done some of that in pattern health. I think that I'll skip over the the social media stuff because I'm going to have to watch this movie before I say anything about using social media. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I really, I find, you know, accountability. Are you part of the problem? I'm probably, yeah, no, I'll never <laughs> deny that. Um, <laughs> I'm sure I'm contributing to all sorts of evil. Uh, no, 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 not at all. Um, yeah, we're trying to get people to do things like exercise and eat healthy. I so I hope that's good. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, I, I think one thing that we we talk about a lot is uh, this idea of accountability, and our sort of play on that is accountability buddies, where we we pair people up, you know, either let them choose someone else um, that they know, or we randomly pair them up to to someone else who maybe has the similar condition. Um, and we have this thing called care circle chats in Pattern Health, where where the patients mm. basically decide who's going to be in their care circle. And then uh, in one version of the care circle, that whole group gets notified of the patient's activity. So uh, they can, you know, say, hey, I saw you didn't take your medication yesterday. Do you need help getting a refill? Or 
um, you know, you know, you did a great job exercising three days in a row. That's awesome. You know, so, so really bringing in our real life networks that are much stronger than, you know, you know, some dumb app tells you great job. Well, it's, you don't really take that as seriously as your mom congratulating you, which really feels real. It is real. And I think the more that we can use these actual people, um, you know, people are generally wanting to be helpful, especially if they're, they're in groups and their peers. And uh, mm. so all we have to do is really kind of facilitate those interactions and then people will automatically come to the rescue. And uh, they want to share with their close ones and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's the potential for accountability buddies is really more in connecting people than, you know, sort of curating the messaging and coming up what to do. Sometimes, you know, it helps to give people here's, uh, here's an easy phrase that, you know, reduce the friction as much as you can so that they they're actually enabled uh, and can do that easily. But yeah, I think maybe that's part of my naivete and thinking that people are good and <laughs> and we should just help them be good. But an interesting, really interesting line of research, John Clausey at the Center for Advanced Hindsight is doing is sort of around this idea of dyad-linked incentives. So we essentially pair people mm. up with a partner and they only succeed if both of them succeed. So uh, he did this experiment where to get Duke students to get their flu shot, he entered them into uh, basically a lottery with a catch. So in the dyad-linked incentives condition, you if you win this lottery, so you don't always win the lottery, but if you win the lottery, you only get to claim your reward if both you and your roommate get vaccinated. So it's sort of a a traditional regret lottery with a spin where you're you're mm-hmm. kind of reliant on each other. Um, and then we compared this to uh, to a, you know just a, a solo regret lottery where only you are entered, and then so on. Just to you know, I think the other the control condition was um, just an implementation intention or something. Anyway, some really interesting research uh, coming out of that, which is sort of a new version of accountability buddies. Really excited to see what those results are, um, and I think that yeah, this is this is a a train that we're intending to sort of hop on and, and follow to see, you know, how can we, how can we pair people up and get them to encourage each other without you know, sort of going back to that idea of facilitating people to, to do this on their own. Right. And you mentioned as well before that you used also like that difference of either pairing people up with someone they knew or like helping them make that easier. Uh, yeah, but also randomly pairing up with uh, someone like stranger. Have exactly. you been able to measure any differences there in terms of their effectiveness of those those things? So we're actually running that study right now. It's in the field. It's a cool. <laughs> it's very large, uh, a, a very large study across I think 160 hospitals across the U.S. And we're we're comparing exactly this with I think it's it's. So it's with heart failure patients. So often the behaviors that are involved are, you know, taking your weight. Um, there's all sorts of bad things that can happen if you uh, if you gain too much weight with heart failure. And it's not because of overeating. It's usually something that has to do with your your fluid retention, which is you know, a symptom that often leads to rehospitalization. And so just keeping track of that number is really important so that we can then intervene and say, oh, that looks bad. Maybe you should, you know, here, here's the person that you should call. 
Uh, and so with the, so they're, they're checking their weight, they're taking their medication. And I think we should actually have results pretty soon. Um, in, in a couple of months or so it's wrapping up. It's been a, it's like a four year study. <laughs> so oh, it's very, oh. yeah, it, it's a big one. Um, and I'm very excited to, to see, you know, what happens when we either randomly pair patients with other, other heart failure patients or get them to sort of bring in their familiar support group. Awesome. I don't know what the, I don't, I'm, I could argue for both, uh, for both hypotheses. So it's one of those that, you know, as an expert, I don't know. (laughs) What is it? It's super exciting. Super exciting. I look forward to hearing those insights and results as well. So, um, so yeah, I feel like I can nerd out more here and, and ask more questions, but there's a very important segment that I feel like we need to get to and it's overrated versus underrated. Awesome. So you're, I think, a little bit familiar with this, but just as a brief introduction for anyone listening, there's a quick fire round uh, of questions where I will list a couple of things and then ask you if you think these things are overrated, underrated, or correctly rated. And I usually say this, that I really encourage controversy here. So I will be quick to give uh, some more contrary nudge if you're saying too many correctly rated, but I don't think it's a problem <laughs> with you, actually. I think it's going to be, yeah. you know, some some interesting answers. So, so uh, I, I don't know. I was thinking, what would be more contrarian of me than saying correctly rated to everything? <laughs> like that—that that would be like my unique form of rebellion. I won't do it. I'm—I won't do it. No, please don't. Uh, but that's funny. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so we're kind of coming now at when we're recording this, just after Thanksgiving, and one of the big things I've heard is that you have pie over Thanksgiving. So as part of Thanksgiving, like, do you think pies are overrated or underrated? Underrated. Pies are the best. And oh my gosh. So, the truth. Okay. so my, uh, my husband and his family, his dad, and really like the Holesworths going on forever are expert pie crust bakers. And, you know, as a result, expert pie bakers. So I'm never the one to bake the pie because I'm not allowed. <laughs> They're, they are, right. they make the very best pies. Everyone knows it. And uh, and there's nothing better. That sounds so wholesome, you know, in the sense that you know, you know, oh, you know, those Holesworth down the street, they have the best pies. You know, they goes back from generations. That sounds very like famous. a nice kind of wholesome. Yeah. Famous for their pies. Yeah, I'm really good yeah. at eating them. That's my job. Good job to have. Is there any <laughs> pie that you think is especially good that uh, that's kind of usually eaten? So their their most famous pie is their sour cherry pie. And we have a tradition Ooh. where yeah, this is sort of a traditional German and you know German Germanic German area sort of uh, cuisine, if that's what, what you would call it. And our tradition is every year to go to essentially drive a couple hours to Virginia and you know go up into the mountains and pick sour cherries and then bring them back pit them and make the pies uh, of course this year with COVID <laughs> we didn't do that um, so we had to buy some sour cherries which was a very sad but still at least got to mm. got to eat. oh they're so delicious you'll I'll send you some jam <laughs> we have sour cherry jam I, as well. I would love I would love to get that for the most part pie has not really been much of my my life so far so I look forward to at some point experiencing more of what, what you're talking about. So what I was going to say next is something a bit different, which is streaks as a way to increase or boost retention in apps. Overrated or underrated? Streaks are both. Can I say both? 
that's that's none of the options. I'm going to say both. Um, streaks, <laughs> streaks are a double-edged sword, right? They're really great when you're on a streak. They can be, you know, you're hitting all of your targets and you're doing really well, but they're super demotivating when you lose your streak. Um, and I mm. say this from personal experience. As soon as I lose my streak, it's just everything's <laughs> out the window. I'm on vacation. But, you know, research right. supports this as well. Uh, so mm. I think that, yeah, a good solution that I... Uh, that I've seen in terms of um, sort of repairing the the downside of streaks is the the research from Marissa Sharif and Suzanne Shu, and this is about their uh, they have this whole concept of emergency reserves, and this is basically if you lose your streak, you've allowed yourself forgiveness. Um, it's sort of like Duolingo's streak repair, and if you can mm-hmm. add that onto a sort of general streak sort of paradigm, then I think it. It gets rid of the downside while keeping the upside. Okay, I accept that answer. That was actually really interesting. <laughs> I'll make sure to link that in the show notes. One thing that's interesting to ask you is about baby names. And this is not a random question in the sense that I happen to know, obviously, that uh, you're about to have your first child uh, in the coming months. <laughs> and I thought it was a great opportunity to, to really, for me, to update my knowledge on celebrity baby names because I'm uh, not so well-versed there. Never been. And but I thought it was Celebrity baby to, to, names. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is what we're going to do. I'm going to list a couple of baby names by some recent celebrity couples oh here. Gosh. And you're going to have to say what you think these names uh, are underrated or overrated. So <laughs> okay. Adam Levine and I think Bahati Prinslow, her name is, have a daughter they named Dusty Rose. Underrated or <laughs> overrated? Underrated. Yeah. Well, yep. I like very. I like pretty unusual. That might be a little more unusual than than my comfort level, but I do like pretty unusual names. I mean, my name is Aline. No one can pronounce Aline or like knows <laughs> what it is, and it's not even that unusual. But uh, right. I've come to really, really like its uniqueness, and so I'm drawn to that. Okay, maybe all of these will be underrated. Benedict Cumberbatch and Sophie Hunter uh, <laughs> has a son called Hal. Overrated or underrated? <laughs> overrated. I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch, there's no better name than that. So <laughs> you can't really, there's no way up from there. Right. And and the last one is JC and Beyonce has a son called Sir. Overrated or underrated? Oh, underrated. That's brilliant. <laughs> love it. I love it. Okay, cool. Any of those names that that you now feel like you need to choose or use? <laughs> no, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna follow my own path on this one. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Look forward to uh, to hearing at some point uh, what what do you guys decide. So, what I would love to hear again, pivoting to something more behavioral science question like fresh start effect. Uh, do you think hmm. that's overrated or underrated as kind of used by the field? Interesting. As used by the field, I don't think the field uses it that often. I think it's underrated. I think we should use it more. Mm. I've benefited a lot from fresh start effects, even in quarantine, where you know everything went downhill for a long time with health and fitness and so on. And I can relate to that. I yeah. kind of, yeah. <laughs> there was there was a time where uh, shortbread and ragusas were a, a daily occurrence. And uh, exercise was just completely out the window. And 
I don't know. I, I wrote an article about a quarantine fresh start and then I was like, well, I guess I have to do this. <laughs> I think that's, that's, that's one funny. of the ways that I've sort of, sort of gotten myself to, to be accountable is, you know, write something about it. And then you're a huge hypocrite if you don't do it yourself. Um, Classic so. commitment consistency. Kind of exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It works. That's great. And uh, inside information, I feel like in some ways, but I'm curious to hear pranks, uh, underrated or overrated? Oh, super underrated. Pranks are the best. <laughs> what what prank did you get wind of that I <laughs> that I? So I, get, I got a wind of it through you. To be fair, so I remember when I first connected with you at some point, I got I think segued to your Medium repository of links, and as I randomly scroll through there, I came across this clip where uh, Dan Ariely pranks you in an interview. Uh, oh man! And yeah. I still have nightmares about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, I, I felt that really, for me, signified a lot of good things about you. Like your willingness <laughs> to actually have that in your repository. I'm not sure it's still there. But uh, <laughs> that really made me respect you in terms of, okay, this is a person that maybe takes work seriously, but maybe not themselves. But um, yeah. yeah, I I try not to take anything too seriously, except for my sense of humor. I'm very serious about that. <laughs> <laughs> have you uh, were you able like as a follow-up were you able to ever kind of um get revenge on that yeah yeah i try every once in a while to get revenge i've done one thing was really effective um another thing really backfired so now i'm sort of i'm sort <laughs> of in a place where i yeah it, w- one thing i did didn't go very well so uh, you know, someone on the other side did not have a very good sense of humor, <laughs> but I right. have, I have, there was, okay, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, the, the one that did go well, uh, there was a, I guess a couple of years ago, uh, Dan went on a, a hike on the Israeli trail, which is really long. Like it was a huge thing. He took like a month off, which if you know, Dan, he doesn't take a day off. Like he, there's not a minute that he doesn't work. And so he did this really radical thing where he was like, I'm going to hike the Israeli trail for a a whole month and have people meet me along the way. And I'm not going to answer email or anything during the day. I'm just going to do this, this thing. And so we were at the time working with a, uh, a digital health partner who we found was was being pretty difficult and asking for really crazy things that were like you know like would have made sense 20 years ago <laughs> like like before the internet like that would have been really you know really would have made a lot of sense but now not so much and so i i sent him this really ranty like really long email and also if you know dan you don't send him a long email you send him a one sentence email at like maximum <laughs> And so I sent him this really long email about how our partner was had decided that uh, we had to integrate our digital health intervention with fax machine, and <laughs> and he said he told me later that he opened up this this email he he read it in the morning and was just like this is so absurd I can't even believe like this is real and then you know as you do he marked it as unread and he was like I'm going to do with this later. And and so throughout the whole day, he's like telling everyone that he meets on the trail about this insane thing that's happening. And he's like, you know, getting kind of like worked up and, and just like fuming throughout the day. 
And then, <laughs> and then he opens it up again later and reads the, you know, the whole email, which uh, the last line was something like April fools, and <laughs> which he didn't even get to <laughs> earlier. And, um, I feel pretty good about that one. <laughs> he said, he said he was, he was very satisfied with that prank. <laughs> that was a great one. That's great. And a little bit of backstory. The one I saw as well was, you know, pretty funny, but also terrible in the sense that, I guess what Dan did was during a time where you're going to record something for a course, hmm. he, the, first, uh, you, the very you, first interview, number one, Okay, I've never been more nervous in my life. <laughs> so you're going to record, you're going to interview Dan for this course. You never had interviewed like a recording like that anyone. before. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyone. Wow. And he is the most difficult as you could possibly be answering any question you ask him. Like, <laughs> He's having and, a, like the, the uh, worst, like just. <laughs> and I completely break down in the video. I was just like, why are you doing this to me? And in my head, I was like, are, like, what have I ever done to you to make you hate me so much that you're putting me through this? <laughs> yeah, and I, like, next question. I think that's not a good question. <laughs> Can we take the next question? Yeah, he's insulting yeah. the questions. He's just giving these absurd, like, you know, one word answers. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that was very yeah. painful. <laughs> yeah uh, but uh again kudos for for sharing sharing that and uh and yeah i i think it was fun fun anecdote as well with, with dan so um to wrap it up i guess the last question i'm usually curious to hear about and you alluded to a little bit is how do you apply behavior science in your own life how how is your home different or your day-to-day different because you're a behavioral scientist <laughs> uh many many ways <laughs> <laughs> Where to even start? Um, so I feel like I've already used a lot of exercise examples, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that. But I I think you know I also talked about how I really like commitment devices. I've done a a couple of those. One was uh, an agreement that I had with my husband, where uh, a while back we we wanted to get better at flossing, um, and so. We were like, okay, how are we going to actually do this? You know, everyone knows you should floss. Everyone hates flossing, but like, let's just start it. And so we agreed that if if either of us went to bed without flossing one day, then the other person would actually get to get to or have to pull out a tooth of the person who didn't floss. Um, (laughs) Whoa. This was was a very hardcore. We're hardcore, yeah. Um, and so I don't know if he really would have uh, would have pulled out my tooth if I didn't floss. But that, like, you know, the the vividness of of that imagery and just the the threat and you know a little bit of humor as well. That was enough. Competition to get us. as well, like not being the Com- one. Who yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, I didn't even mm. think about that. Um, yeah, that was that was when we started flossing and have continued ever since. Um, so, right, make the stakes high. <laughs> and it works. <laughs> yeah. And and I'm curious, having a, a baby on the way, do you have a Skinner box installed in there in there? Oh my gosh. I was hoping for twins so much just so I could do experiments <laughs> on them. That's, that's a real scientist thing to say, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's I'm funny. sadly only having one uh one dino, but but yeah. Right. Maybe next time. Fair enough. And uh, actually to that we talk about documentaries on this episode here, so um, I have to ask: Did you watch the one? Um, what, what is it called? Three Identical Strangers. No. 
Oh, this one. Okay, that's a little bit dark as well. Sorry. Can I handle it? Uh, I don't know. You, if you watch the first half, it's pretty uplifting, um, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then it gets a little bit. A uh, <laughs> it's not allowed. Uh, no, but a pretty pretty good documentary, I would say, especially regarding this, where they had used. Yeah, it's a very interesting story about three identical twins that end up meeting each other in their, well, I think, late teens or early twenties. What's interesting with this documentary is that it unfolds that it was not an accident that they were split in that they were separated for a reason. And it was all part of this research on parenting styles. Oh and, my gosh. But they have a sample of... Yeah, so they had... Yeah, well... Yeah, so they pretty much like first sent out uh, from an orphanage, like they sent out someone uh, to family and then they had kind of ways to measuring what they saw as different parenting styles. And then the second child that they allowed them to adopt was a twin or triplet so that they can then split the other twin or triplet and send it to another family with a different parenting style and and then, you know, have yearly <laughs> comparisons. It's getting really complicated. <laughs> no, wow. but it, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. And, and the results from this study is actually they... I don't remember which university is one of the bigger ones in the US, but it was so controversial that they used before releasing it. They were like, okay, let's just pretend this never happened. And, wow. and no one really found out about it until, you know, this documentary kind of came out two, three years ago. So, so yeah, I feel like I've given a lot of documentary tips this episode, but that's a fascinating one. That is fascinating. Before I rant more about documentaries, <laughs> I think it's somewhat time to wrap this up. This was so much fun. I really enjoyed having you on here and, and talking. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And I guess the good news is that this is somewhat just the beginning. So uh, it's not the end of me. <laughs> right. And uh, so the fun news here is that you will join me as I, I'm calling it the intermittent co host of the program in terms of <laughs> you will come in and join me for a frequent basis, but not every time. Uh, obviously, you have bigger commitments in terms of your personal life and in general. I think it's going to be fun to have you on board. So I'm really excited to have you as a co-host. Yeah, we have a really exciting lineup of, of guests coming on. So I'm going to try and make as many as I can. <laughs> yes. And do you have anything, you know, you want to tell people what to expect from you as a co-host? You know, I feel like I feel like my personality has come across pretty uh <laughs> pretty clearly in this last hour or so. Uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, you can expect honesty from me and little acceptance of BS, uh, unless BS stands for behavioral science, in which case <laughs> that's fine. But, you know, uh, hey, okay. don't you think I should interview you? Shouldn't we have a sort of flip it over? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Sort of switch the hot seat. Could. I think so. I think the I think the viewers, uh, viewers, um, listeners deserve to to hear all about uh, all about you as well. Okay, I'm a little bit tentative with that. Maybe okay. I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> I know. I feel like I, I I have this guilt that I'm carrying with me of you know I I don't want to insert myself too much in these things. I have the newsletter. I have you know certain things like this, and I feel like. People get, in some ways, uh, their fair dose, but but maybe maybe we can do do one maybe for an anniversary of some sort. We can do a whole episode where all we do is talk about documentaries. <laughs> that I'm more into. That that I can yeah. definitely buy. Into. All right. 
Thanks for listening to the Behavioral Design Podcast from Happy Weekly and the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University. The song used in this episode and will be used in future episode is Murgatroyd by the wonderful David Pissarro. And thanks also to the team at Orange Wall Media for the production of this episode. Make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to podcasts. If you like what we're cooking here at the show, share it with a friend or a colleague. And uh, thanks again for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another deep dive into all things behavioral design. Heavens to Murgatroyd. Oh, Blow. Oh, ho, do, 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 do.